From WNAT in New York, this is WNAT Up Next. I'm Tom Stewart. Here at Up Next, we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our programs. Our guest today is considered by many to be the preeminent documentary filmmaker of our times. Ken Burns has had a long and distinguished career with films as diverse as Brooklyn Bridge, baseball, jazz, and the Civil War. In recent years, he's brought us the National Parks, America's Best Idea, and the Roosevelts. Right now, Ken is premiering a two-part, four-hour series on baseball legend Jackie Robinson. Ken, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. I'd like to start right off and having you share with us what actually led you to do a film on Jackie Robinson. Well, I had treated Jackie as the central story of my nine-episode, or inning, as we call them, 18-and-a-half-hour series on baseball that came out in 1994, and I thought I knew a lot about Jackie Robinson. His widow, Rachel, asked me uh, around 2005, 2006 if I'd consider doing a standalone, and I said I'd love to, but I was very busy. But ultimately, uh, Sarah Burns, David McMahon, and I were finishing up a film on Central Park Five, and we were able to see light at the end of that tunnel and said to Rachel that we would be able to make this film. And we did it in large measure because we felt that, like many famous figures like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, uh, Jackie Robinson has been reduced and smothered by mythology. And we're interested in kind of liberating him from the tyranny of that one dimensionality by giving a fuller portrait of the man, his marriage, the times in which he lived, uh, his heroic career in baseball, and all of the other aspects of his life that have not fallen under our purview in the kind of the superficial, conventional wisdom stories we tell these days in our media culture. And so, you know, it's a two-part, four-hour film. The first part recounts what is perhaps at least superficially familiar to other people, but we go in it, into it at great depth and at different angles, not cutting the corners that I think others have done in the past, not perpetuating myths that didn't happen, but telling a, a truer and more complicated, but we think more interesting story. And then in part two, the revelation of what the rest of his baseball career and his post-baseball career was like is, is virtually unknown as, as he segued from being a Hall of Fame uh, baseball player uh, to being a full-time, he'd never abandoned this as a baseball player, civil rights leader, uh, someone who in some ways led the modern manifestations of the civil rights movement when he came up in 47. Martin Luther King was just in college. So this is a, an opportunity for us to sort of dive deep as we're permitted to do in public television and tell a more complete story. And I think Sarah Burns and David McMahon and I are as thrilled about this project as any that we've worked on. I've had an opportunity to screen the film, uh, and I learned so much. Again, I think for me, I had what I would call the Cliff Notes version of Jackie Robinson right. in that's my right. head. You know, that's the story uh, for a lot of people, but this is so full so complete. Uh, I'm extremely impressed at the the, the human story, uh, in addition to the you know the professional baseball story, the professional political story, but the the family story uh, is a great emotional core for me when I was watching. Well, you know, we don't have multi-generational portraits of African-American families that are complex with triumphs, but also tragedies. And we don't have love stories that are, 
you know, not just sugar-coated. And, you know, one of the great love stories I've ever come across is the one between Rachel and Jackie. Uh, but it's not without its ups and downs. And um, it, she is unflinchingly honest about it. I mean, she's 93 years old. We interviewed her when she was 89 and 90 or 90 and 91. And mm-hmm. my goodness, um, you know, it's difficult to share, open up your heart. Uh, for these things that that involve not only those triumphs but those tragedies as well and and I feel so fortunate that she you know was willing to do that for us and and other family members and other people, including the president and the first lady who participated in making him a real and dimensional character, making the love story that as well, making the family story that as well, and placing it within the larger context of of civil rights, because you're absolutely right. We have inherited a Cliff Notes version. That's what I mean by the mythology. And what happens is things get overemphasized. Branch Rickey is a great man, um, and a brave one too. And while he had certain kind of business uh, savvy, he this was a real gut check. He, he felt this was morally right to do. But he he looms larger in other stories, and that takes away Jackie's agency. We also focus only on the years when he comes up, when he's made the pledge to Mr. Ricky to turn the other cheek in the face of the thousands of racial slights, threats, and abuse that he would face, and not on who he was, the fiery and competitive person that was unwilling to accept second-class citizenship before and the one afterwards. And when you know, he stopped. He didn't have to do the pledge anymore. All of a sudden, those who had praised him, you know, as the, in quotes, good Negro, and using the parlance of the period, now yes. found him an uppity N-word and were just, you know, kind of disappointed that he didn't fit a kind of mold. But Jackie wasn't that kind of person. And I think this is what makes the story so interesting and so well, it's complex. Well, it's a great film. And I think people are really going to uh, em- embrace it for all of the things we've been talking about. Uh, I'd like to go a little more broadly with you. Uh, about things today. What first led you to this filmmaking career? What what happened that made Ken Burns a filmmaker? Um, I, my mother died of cancer when I was 11 years old. She'd been sick for almost a decade. And my dad, who'd had a fairly strict curfew, nonetheless let me watch movies with him at night. And when I was 12, after my mom died, he'd burst into tears. I'd never seen my dad cry. He hadn't cried while she was sick or when she died. And I realized instantaneously what a safe haven, what an emotional harbor film could be. And I vowed right then I wanted to be a filmmaker. And later I went to Hampshire College and met a social documentary still photographer named Jerome Liebling and his protege, Elaine Mays. And they sort of rearranged my molecules and I became interested not in being a feature filmmaker but a documentary filmmaker. And somehow... A completely untrained and latent interest in American history has meant that for the last 40 years I've done nothing but historical documentaries trying to ask a very simple question, who are we? And you don't get a, a simple answer. You don't even get an answer. You deepen the question. And so whether it's the Brooklyn Bridge or Statue of Liberty, or Roosevelt's or the things we're working on now on Vietnam, yes. yeah. on country music, on Hemingway, you have an opportunity to deepen the question. And so... 
I feel very fortunate that early on I knew what I was supposed to do and a little bit later knew specifically what I was supposed to do and that I have had this remarkable association with public television uh, that began with WNET. Just, I was going to ask you that question. Uh, yeah. we're, we're told here that when the Brooklyn Bridge was being made, it was WNET that helped you finish it. Is that true? Uh, at the very end, yes, some of the finishing money. Uh, we I'd gotten it from a bank, uh, but I had also gotten uh, from George Page, who used to run a good deal of the programming. In, uh, Absolutely, at, at and the host of Nature for many and years. And the host of Nature for many years. George sort of, uh, you know, set a pick for me and, and permitted some funds. And I was able to, with, with the other grants, uh, complete the Brooklyn Bridge film. So that film was released in association with WNETS, was my second film on the Shakers. And then my third film on the Statue of Liberty also uh, was born uh, and was associated with, with WNETS. And they've been associated with WETA for many years. And then I was also, while I was working on the Statue of Liberty, uh, ended up in a relationship with WETA and Louisiana Public Broadcasting producing a film on Huey Long at the same time as doing Statue of Liberty. And I realized that the proximity of the archives in Washington, D.C. that were the the main resources for my research and the nature of the hierarchy at, at WETA, and I've, I've been with them ever since, but have always maintained a very close and cordial relationship with WNET. Now, people often can uh, note your style, a very specific style of filmmaking. Did you actually set out to create uh, something new with a style? No, I don't think you can do that. I, I think if we back up and sort of try to agree on terms, it might be helpful to, to understand. Style, I would just like to suggest for the purposes of this conversation, is the authentic application of technique. We could say that even though I have at my disposal hundreds of techniques, if I could just isolate eight for oral and for visual, it might help you. So I have, since the very beginning of my professional life, been engaging four very obvious visual elements. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the still photograph. The other is the found motion picture footage. The third is the interview. And the fourth is modern live cinematography of the perhaps in the case of the Civil War, Brooklyn Bridge, now quiet battlefield, or now still active Brooklyn Bridge. Yes. On the oral soundtrack, what I did was I complimented, I hope, the third person narrator, what we call in our business the voice of God, with a chorus of first person voices that would read authentic letters and journals and diaries and mm -hmm. newspaper accounts and military reports that would offset the kind of you know, this is what you should know that the narrator is telling you and, and proving to you that people lived lives back then as full as we live lives right now, that they lived and loved in the same way that we did. And that you could augment those photographs and those voices and that narration with period music that was of the place and music that was recorded not after the editing but before the editing so mm. it could inform the pace and rhythm and that you would have a complex sound effects track as complex as any feature film that would help will to life those old photographs because it's it's okay to hold them at arm's length but then that's all they are but if you go yes. in and energetically explore them as I do from a visual way you also need to listen to those photographs are the troops tramping are the bat cracking can you hear the thrum of traffic over the Brooklyn Bridge. If you can make that come alive, 
then you are helping treat an old photograph, the DNA of what I do, um, as as not a frozen moment, but but a moment that had a past and and will have a future. That horse and cart could pass through from left to right, and you could make that sound and you could animate it. I, I remember still the very best compliment I've ever had about my work came not from a critic, but at the premiere with 75 people at the Brooklyn Museum with folding chairs and a projector I set up, and an elderly woman just said, where did you get the footage of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge? And I said, well, ma'am, you know, it was built between 1869 and 1880 and there were no motion pictures were invented then perhaps you're thinking of part two of Brooklyn Bridge where we deal with it as a symbol and there we were able to take some of the earliest uh, motion pictures that Edison took mounted on the trains that used to run back and forth across the Brooklyn Bridge he goes no I mean when they brought the big blocks of granite by those boats those scows up to the towers and they'd lift them by derricks up there and I said ma'am those were all still photographs and she looked at me defiantly and she said no they're not and I suddenly realized, give up on this. You know, you've won. If she thinks that that was real, if the seagulls and the men's shouts and the hammers and the you know, primitive pneumatic steam engines and, and the lapping of the waves of the East River and how we filmed those still photographs, she thought that was real, then so be it. And real, that, to, real to us. That is what is my style, is trying to sort of wake the dead, to be blunt about it. But it's authentic to me. And each film is different. Each one of those, say, eight elements, and maybe they're 800, are calibrated differently in each film. And that's the way it's true for anybody. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people say, well, why don't you just do something else? Have you ever thought of doing it this way? And while I am now in my 60s and, and doing other things, not because people think I should, there's still, if you look at the Central Park Five film that I made with Sarah Burns and David McMahon also, it is very contemporary and yet those same basic elements of still photographs and footage and interview there's no narration um there's no first person voices because all the people involved are alive you begin to understand that each film has an opportunity to recalibrate and reset how those are some some films like lewis and clark have an abundance of live Mm -hmm. cinematography there's no photographs and a few contemporary paintings won't sustain storytelling for very long some films have all first person voices because of course no one's alive you know Uh, some have very little or none our jackie robinson film has only one jamie fox reading the 15 quotes of jackie robinson Mm -hmm. that uh we felt deserved to be uh, you know, stand alone and not paraphrased by the narrator or yes. by our talking heads. And some have very few talking heads. Some have a lot of talking heads. So each film offers an opportunity to calibrate these elements that go into it. And, and that, and I didn't mean to be so long-winded, is no, style. You know, that I think is what style is. And I think that a painter or, or, a, or a composer uh, you know, you can recognize a John Williams score. You can say, ah, that's Beethoven, if you know a little bit about that. You can listen and you can hear in one note, whether that's Louis Armstrong on the trumpet or Miles Davis on the trumpet. And that all has to do with style, which is the authentic application, application of, of technique. technique. Thank you. It's a wonderful, wonderful explanation. You work with so many people and have worked with so many people over the years. How do you keep all of your projects going at one time? And do you have 
teams dispatched for for several projects at a time, or do you have a nucleus of people that you always work with? It's yeah, the, the latter more. Um, I, I don't want to say teams of people because when we go off, that it's it's really more than three or four. I'm always so surprised when people come up and interview me. They have crews that are bigger than right. twice as big as <laughs> the I'm ones thinking, that we use. But, but, but when I read the credits of a Ken Burns yep. documentary, uh, there's a lot of people. There are a lot of people, and they're th- being thanked correctly, but the nucleus of a film that even a, a big, big series like uh, our upcoming one on Vietnam or the one on, on uh, Franklin and uh, Eleanor and Theodore Roosevelt that was on a couple of years ago, they're made essentially by a handful of people. It's, uh, and these are you know, people you've worked with people. for many years. And this would be Buddy the, Squires, a cinematographer. Buddy, Buddy Squires is a cinematographer, but I would count the writer mm-hmm. and then the co-director or co-producers with me and a couple of associate producers and then the editors and their assistants. And so that might, on a big series, total 13, 14 people. And they're the ones that are really in the trenches. And that's how these films get made, kind of handmade up in Walpole, New Hampshire, more often than not. And it's labor-intensive. And what happens is that on any given project, and I find the older I get, the more I'm working on, I'm working on several now at once, is that, yes, I am involved in the critical decisions. But if you've worked with people for an awfully long time, you don't need to do every one of the interviews. You can trust Lynn Novick on uh, baseball and jazz and now Vietnam to do uh, uh, the lion's share of the interviews. I'm good at it, but she's good at it too. Uh, same with Dayton Duncan, who's, who worked on Lewis and Clark, Horatio's Drive and the National Parks and the Dust Bowl, and now he and I are working on country music. I don't have to do all the interviews. I can do some. He can do some. Uh, I don't have to shoot every archive, particularly in a digital age where we rarely take our umbrella lights and go and set up at an archive. We go there and we scan and we digitize, and I have a chance to see back in the editing room. What I don't give up is my time in the editing room, which is the supervision of every screening so that I can influence the story when it's at its crude worst and you know everybody's looking around going oh my god what have we gotten ourselves into and i seem to have a knack for figuring out what the next step should be so at the critical points i don't feel like i've given up the authorship but i also know it's lawful to having worked with so many people who have been so loyal and have been so talented and have grown up. I mean, I've worked with Buddy for over 40 years. I've worked with Jeffrey Ward, my principal writer, for 34 years. I've worked with Dayton Duncan, the second writer, for 27 years. I've worked with Lynn Novick for 27 years. I've worked with Sarah Botstein, another producer, for 20. I have an editor who's retiring after 34 years of working for me. I have kids who came in as unpaid interns, back in the 80s who are now my senior editor with, you know, mortgages and teenage kids and, you know... And your own family, your daughter and, and my own family, you know, involved. who I remember Sarah Burns when I was working on the Shaker film, my second film, crawling under the editing table, uh, you know, <laughs> and now she bosses me around in the editing room. And uh, it's the greatest pleasure of my life is to have this incredibly intelligent, smart thoughtful person check my own sort of wildly enthusiastic impulses and say, no, Dad, that's actually not correct. And she's great. And and, uh, her husband, David McMahon, who's been, we've been working since the late 90s together. He's an extraordinary filmmaker. He he and Sarah wrote the script for the Jackie Robinson film. Mm -hmm. They are with me, the co-directors and co-producers. 
producers, and also Dave and I were co-producers, and he co-wrote the film update of baseball called The Tenth Inning. And at the same time, we have a lot of young people coming in who keep us from, you know, perhaps straying into that potentially murky area of formula. You know, mm-hmm. they're saying, why do it that way? You know, I had a... Is that had, the kind uh, of advice you give to a young filmmaker? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, there are two things, and they're total platitudes, so I would not... You know, I always cringe when people ask me what the advice is, because it's always... The first one, Socratic, know who you are. You know, film is very popular and attractive and seemingly glamorous, and it's not completely that. And so you got to know that you've got something to say, that you that you have that to do, and then you have to have perseverance, particularly in documentary. You know, um, I remember when I first started off in college, there were about 40, 50, 60 people in the, in the early film and photography classes. I think three of us graduated uh, in 1975 in, in, you know, with a degree in film. And all, all of those people are still making documentaries today, those, all of us. And, and that meant that we may not have had the best talent, but what we did is we had perseverance. And yes. we knew how to, I mean, my Brooklyn Bridge film is a good example. I had for many years on my desk three-ring binders, each one of those big, huge, wide ones, like four mm-hmm. inches wide, both of them filled with the rejections from funding sources for Brooklyn Bridge. And it just was to keep me humble. Just remind me that you just plow forward. I'm sure there were 700 rejections, right? And I just kept going. And you just keep going forward. And maybe someone else with a lot more talent would have said, well, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this anymore. And quit. And we're bereft of of that talent or maybe not. Maybe all of this, uh, you know, being able to make something has to do with a combination Mm -hmm. of talent and certainty but also perseverance. Well, we are looking forward to so much more from you. The Vietnam series is coming fairly soon, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, in, in September of 2017. It's actually, we're done editing, but it's like finishing editing 10 feature films, and now we have to sound edit them and then mix each one of those sound-edited, uh, complicated soundtracks. And you can imagine War is the most complicated soundtrack you can have. And then we promote it, you know, and a lot of shoe leather goes into that. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think September of 2017, which must seem impossibly a uh, long time away, is tomorrow. And I yeah. can wake up in the middle of the night with that kind of, yikes, you know, pit in my <laughs> stomach, you know, how are we going to do it? But, you know, uh, Lynn Novick, who's the co-director with me on this, and Sarah Botstein, who is with Lynn and me, the co-producers of this, you know, we've got a system and we're working hard and we're putting one foot in front That's of great. the other and making progress. And you're on to country music next after oh, that? Oh, I thought we're already open our edit. We've been editing for... Oh, let's say about two and a half months on country music. It'll be a multi-year process. Uh, uh-huh. We're doing early script editing, kind of radio plays, if you will, before we torture the editors by asking them to place uh, pictures with the, the stuff. We'd rather do it with me as the narrator, refining the stories and the talking heads, and then beginning to see you know, what, where we're gravitating towards. And then at some point, after a couple of what we call blind assemblies, begin to add picture. And we're now at that point. We've been working for several months with these so-called blind assemblies, and now we're moving to where we can actually see images. And we've collected, meanwhile, in a parallel effort, uh, you know, not only the 95 interviews we've done to date, but we've collected thousands, tens of thousands of images uh, that will, as we've done for all the other films, be the grist for the editing mill for this eight-part, 16-hour film that we're doing on country music. And I haven't even mentioned Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, we've done a lot of shooting there. We've got one, it's a two-parter like Jackie, and the first script is delivered, and it's just 
gorgeous and we're waiting uh, for Jeff Ward to do the second one and we'll at some point when we can see the light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam we'll dispatch to, to Cuba and to Spain and to Paris and to uh, archives uh, around the country collecting uh, the, the, the things we need to begin in earnest the uh, second phase and what is for us the most important phase the editing phase of, yes. of Ernest Hemingway and we're planning the 2020s I've signed with PBS through 2030 God and funding willing and uh, <laughs> I'm also serving as an executive producer on five other films that we're, we're working right now and so you'll see another film that I'm actually a co-director on coming up in September called Defying the Nazis, The Sharps War, about a Unitarian minister and his wife who on the eve of World War II very heroically got Jews and other refugees out of Prague and then later southern France once the war had started. Very riveting story, kind of like a almost a film noir or some of those dark Alan First novels of occupied Paris. And it's all true. And uh, there's no narrator, just the voice of Tom Hanks as the minister and Marina Goldman as his wife off camera reading their letters and journals and diaries and, and remembrances. So that's a very exciting project that's coming up. I made with a man named Artemis Tchaikovsky. Ken, uh, the uh, the joy and the enthusiasm that that you bring to all of this is just infectious. And I, I just want to, as as a viewer for many years, want to want to thank you. And well, uh, thanks, and David thank McCullough told me when, you know that Harry Truman said the only thing that's really new is the history you don't know. And I love that. And and you, you sort of think that the past is fixed and that it's the future that's malleable. But what you find when you get into the history business is that the past is really malleable. You know, it, it depends on the passage of time and new perspectives and new discoveries. I mean, I passed through the 1920s about eight or ten different times on various films, and the 20s that I passed through are totally different than any other 20s that, uh, that the other films were, you know, whether it's baseball or jazz or prohibition or uh, the Dust Bowl or other things. And so that just tells you that most of us, when you say the 20s, you've got this idea of flappers or gangsters or whatever it is you have. Yeah. And then that's it. But I've got these deeply, deeply complex and deeply, deeply varied versions of it, and that can keep you going. So. <sighs> Thank this, you. This I've, I've really enjoyed Ken, our conversation. It's, it's great to talk to you, uh, and we hope uh, to have you back again sometime in the near future. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. I've been forward to it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And check out our website at 13.org slash Ken Burns for more. Share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org. And of course, please do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is presented by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. With special thanks today to our Community Relations Department. I'm Tom Stewart. <laughs>